If we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and at the same time you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And that means that fundamentally the Christian life is all about God's kindness, um, that we truly believe at RUF that no one would be a Christian without God's abundant kindness towards them, uh, that you don't become a Christian by your good works. Uh, you become a Christian because God raises you from the dead. That's how everyone becomes a Christian. Uh, and this semester we're going through a series in the Old Testament um, called Every Story Whispers His Name. Um, and our kind of theme this semester within that is that the Old Testament shows us the heart of Jesus and it gives us wisdom for the modern world. So the Old Testament, confusing as it may be, uh, we're going to kind of make the claim every week that it shows us something about who Jesus is. Uh, and that not only that, it actually can be helpful for our lives in the modern world. And thus far, we've considered how Jesus read the Bible, starting in Luke 24. Uh, and then we saw the creation of everything and the fall of humanity into sin last week. And tonight, we're considering a story that I'm sure many of us will have heard of, uh, Noah and the Ark. Um, but even as Lauren was reading, I I'd be willing to bet you had the experience of, I didn't really know that was in there. Or, that's kind of odd. Um, I think this story is, uh, it's kind of one of the most beloved stories for children's Bibles, um, which is great. Like, I'm a supporter of children's Bibles. Uh, shameless plug for the Jesus Storybook Bible. You should read it. It's really good. Uh, but, I don't know if you've actually read the children's storybook versions of uh, Noah, the story of Noah. It's, it kind of glosses over a lot of things. Uh, when you actually read the story, uh, it's not kind of like this cutesy story of two by two and Noah is like a zookeeper and, aw shucks, isn't life so hard and like this is a really cool boat. Uh, this story, when you look more closely, it reads a lot more like a tragedy than a comedy. Um, it's, a, it's a heavy, heavy story. The story of Noah and the Ark, it's less of a fun, lighthearted story and more of a story about a loving father and a corrupt rebellious and self-destructive child. Uh, the story uh, some of you might have heard of, uh, there was a movie that came out a couple years ago called Beautiful Boy. Uh, it was based on a book of the same name that came out a while ago. Um, but it's a man named David Sheff who is writing about uh, his experience of being a father of an addict. Um, and he, his son, Nick Sheff, was addicted to uh, meth. And his whole story was one of relapse again and again and again. And the book is this father who's wrestling with this relationship. And kind of at the center of, of this book um, and of the movie is this poem that the father composed. Uh, it goes like this. He says, fortunately, I have a son, my beautiful boy. Unfortunately, he is a drug addict. Fortunately, he is in recovery. Unfortunately, he relapses. Fortunately, he is in recovery again. Unfortunately, he relapses. Fortunately, he is not dead. You see, this tension that we see here of this loving father trying to grapple with the fact that he has a rebellious and self-destructive child, that is, that's kind of what the story of Noah is all about. The story of Noah finds God at a similar place to David Sheff, the author of this poem. God is a loving father who is painfully aware of his children's problems. He's painfully aware, and he makes a promise. We saw this last week. He made a promise to do something about it. As soon as sin came into the world, God made a promise that someday, somehow, he was going to do something about it. And this is kind of the, the, the drama. This story continues that drama. And so as we look at this passage, we're just going to kind of have this main idea before us. 
Uh, In the face of the disastrous effects of sin, God refuses to give up on his loving purpose. So in the face of the disastrous effects of sin, God refuses to give up on his loving purpose. So we're just going to kind of consider both parts of that. First, the disastrous effects of sin, and second, God's loving purpose. So I'm going to pause and pray, and we can get started. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for the ability to be here tonight. We thank you for um, the Bible, for the fact that you spoke, that you gave us uh, stories and poems and um, laws that often seem confusing to us and all sorts of wonderful things, um, Lord, that, that often blow our mind but often leave us scratching our head. And so, Lord, I, I do pray as we turn to this story of Noah, a story that might be familiar for a lot of us um, but might not be for others of us. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to um, see anew who you are, that you would help us to see who we are, who you call us to be in response. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us to see the heart of Jesus in this passage. Uh, Lord, we need your help. Will you send your spirit to open our eyes? And all this I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so first we're going to look at the disastrous effects of sin. So right at the beginning of the passage that Lauren read for us, uh, you see that God doesn't really pull any punches. Uh, in verse 5 of chapter 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So in this story, kind of the beginning, we see from God's view where humanity is at, how things have been going. Uh, the fall into sin apparently had disastrous consequences. Uh, God's view of the person, he says that our heart, and heart in the Old Testament, it's kind of the the center of the person. That was their understanding. God says that our heart is only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, And I wonder if that's how you think about yourself. Um, That, when I hear that, I'm like, man, sounds a bit harsh, right? Uh, Of course, we can think of people, uh, maybe that might fit this uh, description, but of course, they're not us. Um, Most of us might think, well, is God saying here that we're like all like Hitler or we're all like the KKK? Like, what is God trying to say here with this sort of diagnosis of humanity? Uh, God here is saying something. I think he's saying that, yes, we are all evil, but no, not in the sense that we think. Okay? Okay. So this is a foundational verse for uh, a doctrine that some of you might have heard of called total depravity. Uh, and when I say total depravity, that sounds really like heavy metal. Um, that would actually be a really good name for a heavy metal band, so if you're into that. Um, but total depravity, it's this doctrine that essentially with all of our being, we are corrupt. All of our being, because of the fall into sin, it left humanity in this place where we are totally, all of our being, every sort of faculty in us, is corrupt. So, yeah, that's total, which means all of our being. Depraved means corrupt. And what that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It doesn't mean that every single person is, like, going to turn into Hitler. (laughs) That's not what total depravity means. Uh, What it means is that there isn't an aspect of us that is left unaffected by the fall into sin. It means that the center of who we are from which everything flows out of is corrupted, 
And this view of human nature, it's not just in this passage. This is not, it, it's a bad idea to just base everything you believe off of just one Bible verse. Uh, we need to consider the whole thing. And this is actually repeated throughout Scripture. The Psalms repeated, like, repeat this idea. The prophets repeat this idea. The New Testament repeats this idea. And, of course, Jesus repeats this again and again. This is Jesus' assumption about human nature. So uh, what does this mean for us, though? Uh, what does this mean? How does God respond to this total depravity? How does he respond to the fact that every intention of the thoughts of human hearts are only evil continually? We see his response in verse 6. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, this language here is uh, relatable. I think we all know what it feels like to regret something. Like we might think of eating too much, uh, think of, you know, leaving a conversation and just having said something and like kicking yourself again and again, why did I say that? This is the language that is used to describe how God feels about humanity when he looks at human beings who are, who are broken. It says that he regrets that he made human beings and it says that he is grieved in his heart. Uh, elsewhere in scripture, we actually learn uh, that God's regret is different from ours. So when we think regret, we think, well, God, uh, God like actually changed his mind. Like he changed his mind and he didn't want anything to do with humanity. Uh, we see elsewhere in scripture, that's not actually what it is. What this is, is kind of accommodated language. It, it's, it's the authors of scripture, in this case Moses, using language that we can understand, language that we can relate to, and explaining something in God. See, similar to us, God, he feels like we do when we regret things. He feels like we do when we grieve. But the difference is, God's grief, God's regret, is not because of something he did wrong. It's because of something we did. There's a fundamental difference there. So sin has had this effect on us such that we are internally corrupted. But not only is there internal corruption because of sin, there's also external corruption. We see in uh, 6.11, God says that the earth, uh, meaning the physical creation, was corrupt in God's sight. Says that it was filled with violence. Uh, The language there, I think, is really important. It says that the earth is corrupt, but as it goes on, it becomes clear that when God says the earth is corrupt, what he means is humanity is corrupt. Who filled the earth with violence? It's humanity. The earth itself, which God called good seven times when he made it, is described here, the language, it literally he's describing it as a wasteland. He's saying that there's something about the way that human beings behave, the, the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we live our lives, that affects the created world, that affects the culture around us. So I think this is an important point that the effects of our fall into sin, the effects of sin are not just internal. It's not just a heart issue. It actually spills over into everything. Uh, And I think this is something we can understand. Uh, Think about, for instance, uh, COVID, something that many of us might think of. Uh, When someone asks you what's been the toughest part about COVID, um, many of you have gotten it. Some of you haven't gotten COVID. Uh, But even if you haven't actually had COVID before, even if you haven't experienced the internal effects of COVID, uh, we can all lament something. We can all lament, for some of us, COVID took away your senior year. 
For some of you, it took away like your freshman year of college. Uh, it led to supply chain issues, which are like ubiquitous everywhere now. Uh, canceled concerts, the great resignation, everybody's leaving their job. You see, in the same way, even though COVID is something that human beings get inside of them, it has very real implications for the outside world. And I think what we see in this passage is that sin is the same way. Mankind's corruption is so great that it spills into everything. You see, sinful human beings create sinful things. It's spilled into everything. And we see the ultimate effect of this, the ultimate corruption, the ultimate consequence of this with what God says in 6-7. He says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then later in the story, in 7.21, we didn't read this, but we see that God does do what he said he would do. And I think we need to like let ourselves feel how sad this is. This verse here, uh, uh, Genesis 7.21, it says, After God has sent the flood on the earth, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. We need to let ourselves feel the weight of that. See, and what this is is not just an arbitrary judgment from God. This is not God just getting really mad because of some arbitrary rule. This is what God said would happen in the garden. He said that the day we eat of this fruit, that, that we would die. And this is what happened. Now, as I've been talking about this, uh, as I've been talking about things like sin and judgment, um, I'm mindful of the fact that when we hear the word sin, uh, I think many of us might be wondering, um, is it helpful for me to think of myself as like sinful or like corrupt? Uh, maybe you've been to one of the, uh, the churches that's affiliated with RUF in town. Each of these churches have something called a confession of sin as a part of their service. Uh, this is something that I grew up with, so it didn't seem weird to me, but I, I've talked to a lot of folks who it's really odd that you come into church and you confess your sin. Or maybe you use some sort of devotional resources, resource that has like a confession of sin into it. And, and the question is, like, is this helpful? Is it helpful to constantly refer to yourself as a sinner? Is it helpful to constantly acknowledge that there's something in you that's broken? That, that you're corrupted? Uh, won't that just lead to like chronically low self-esteem? Won't that just lead to maybe on the one hand like an anxious moral perfectionism, like thinking that sin is hiding behind every blade of grass and you just got to stay away from it? Or maybe on the other side just outright despair and depression? Like is it helpful to refer to ourselves this way? Does God want me to kind of be like Eeyore all the time? Is his goal for me to just be sad? I think these are valid and important questions when we consider what God has to say about us in the scripture. And I do think that there absolutely is an abuse of this concept, that there are some uh, cultures wherein we use the term sinner uh, unhelpfully to kind of diminish the fact that we're created in God's image. But I do want to say that I think this is a really helpful concept that we don't need to abandon. And I want to submit this before you. I think ex affirming the extent of our sin, uh, agreeing with what God says here, 
It doesn't actually lead to anxious perfectionism or despair, but it leads to freedom and to hope. It actually leads to freedom and to hope. Uh, an author I really like uh, named Francis Spufford wrote a book called Unapologetic. Um, and in that book, he kind of describes, he, he's essentially defending Christian emotions, which is a weird thing to do. But he's talking about why uh, Christian emotional responses to things are valid. And he's talking about sin in this excerpt here. He says, if you don't give the weight in your chest its true name, you can't even begin. It's guilt or sin that drags at your steps. It's sin that paints the morning black. In times of intense mi misery, it's letting your sin be sin that at least stops you needing to accuse yourself. And in better times, I've found that admitting there's some black in the color chart of my psyche doesn't invite the blot of dark to swell or give partial truth more gloomy power over me than it should have, but the opposite. It helps you stop wasting your time on denial and therefore helps you stop ricocheting between unrealistic self-praise and unrealistic self-blame. It helps you to be kind to yourself. So I want to ask you, does that, being kind to yourself, having a better understanding of yourself, does that sound appealing to you? I want to submit before you that I think being honest about our sin, being honest about the fact that as we talked about last, last week, we are glorious ruins. We have astonishing dignity, and yet at the same time, everything seems to be shot through with something that's just broken. There's sin, and calling it, calling what we do sin is helpful. It's helpful in the sense of it, it allows you to name what's going on rather than to have to self-deny on one side, you know, or to self-accuse on the other side. It actually lessens your anxiety. And if you have any interest in maybe eventually getting married someday, I would encourage you that it is really helpful to be able to name what you did as wrong. <laughs> so if you, if you ever want to do that someday, I would encourage you, start now. It's a great idea. So, that, so those sin and its effects are pervasive, both in our hearts internally and the world around us. That's not the end of the story. We see also in this passage that God refuses to give up on his loving purpose. So second, we're just going to look at what that loving purpose is. So we see God's refusal to give up. We see that he refuses to give up, even though there is judgment in this passage. See that God is grieved by humanity. But we see in verse 8, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Even though God is grieved, even though it uses the language of regret, it says here that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the thing about Noah is that Noah didn't find favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was so good. There wasn't anything exceptional about him. It just says that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then the next verse talks about Noah being a righteous man. And I think the implication of this is that Noah was a righteous man because he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He did not find favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was a righteous man. That's a huge implication. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And favor, it just means grace or kindness, like what we talk about in RUF. So God chooses to show mercy on Noah and his family. But not only that, God continues his mission that he was doing in Eden. Even though the fall into sin happened, God continues his garden purpose. He tells Noah to make an ark. This is the part of the story that most of us are familiar with. A large wooden ship, and he gives him very specific details of what it's supposed to look like. He tells him that he's supposed to take 
a breeding pair, essentially, of everything in creation, two by two. And the implication there is that he is, he is carrying in the ark a new Eden. There's a new garden there. It even uses some of the same, same language. It says, each according to its kind, repeating so much stuff from the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative. And then you see the same thing happening here. And we see, again, even after the flood, God says to Noah and his sons, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Is that language familiar? It's the language from Genesis 1 and 2. God is, is committed to his original purpose of having image bearers on the earth spreading his character across the world. He's working through Noah and his family now. So despite mankind's depravity, God remains committed to his purpose. But we see also that God uh, moves even closer. He doesn't just start over with a smaller group of people. He gives us more to go off of than what we see in Genesis 3. Uh, In chapter 8, verses 21, God issues this promise. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I don't know if you noticed, but that's the same language that God used at the beginning of the passage, when he's grieved in his heart, when he says every intention was only evil. God is using this after judgment as well. And he then goes on to say that he will have mercy on the creatures of the earth and that he's going to ensure a, a, a healthy world a world that is not overtaken by humanity's corruption. See, God is both, at the same time, he is astonishingly honest about our corruption. He affirms that. And yet, he promises mercy. He promises to respond differently. His eyes are wide open to humanity's terrible problem. But he stubbornly refuses to give up. And we see this more fully on display in this covenant that God makes. God makes a covenant with Noah. Uh, This is the first use of this word, uh, covenant, but it is a very, very important word for the entirety of the Old Testament, for the entirety of the Bible, really. It's used over 250 times. Uh, But covenant simply, it's just God's chosen way of relating to his creation. It's a special promise. It's a promise that is more personal than a contract, and it's more permanent than an ordinary relationship. And that's the way that God himself chooses to relate to his creation. And so he makes this covenant with humanity and all of creation. He promises to never again destroy the earth. And more than that, he gives a symbol of this covenant. Says in, I believe it's 913, I think. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So he's referring essentially to the rainbow. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud. But the the cool thing about this is the word for bow there, it's not the word for rainbow. It's the word for bow like a war bow. Every other time it's used in the Old Testament, it's referring to a weapon of war. So the image here is that God, who has just made war on the earth because of humanity's corruption, is setting his weapon aside. He's setting his weapon aside and said, I'm never going to do that again. He's going to withhold the disastrous effects of sin from his creation. You see, in all of this, we see an astonishing unity. We see God continuing the same purpose that he had in the garden. We see him curbing the corruption of the earth. We see him saying that even though mankind continues to be sinful, I'm I'm not going to allow them to destroy this creation. And he even moves further and, and makes a covenant. 
You see, what God does, his response to sin, his response to our depravity, to our failure, is moving towards us more. See, God responds to human sin by offering clearer promises. It's as if the further we run away from him, the closer he pursues us. So what do we do with this? How might understanding this change us deeply? I think, first of all, this changes the way that we view ourselves. Changes the way that we view ourselves. Uh, Despite the fact that God had grief in his heart about the place of humanity, we see him moving towards humanity again and again. We saw this in Genesis 3. We see this again in our passage. Even though God is fully aware of all of the corruption, somehow he keeps moving towards us. And I wonder if this is how you feel, like, in your sin. I wonder if this is how you feel. Um, Maybe you're not ready to use that word sin yet. I wonder if this is how you feel in your failure. I wonder if this is how you feel when you know that you've disappointed someone. What does it feel like to have someone move towards you in that moment? See, that's how God relates to us. And a lot of us, I think it's easy when we start talking about sin, we, we, we maybe think that God is just saying that we're terrible that we're like unworthy of love, that he wants nothing to do with us. But again, from this passage, we see the complete opposite. We see God moving towards us again and again. So this changes the way we view ourselves, but I think this also changes the way that we view sin. In this passage, we see God's resolve to move towards us, and and when we look at that, it dissolves our hearts. It actually makes us... Abhor sin. It makes us not want to sin. Uh, the New Testament puts us this way. Puts it this way. It says the kindness of God moves us to repentance. See, when we struggle with sin, whether it's it's greed, whether it's lust, whether it's prejudice, racism, gluttony, whatever it is, the way forward is not to just like white knuckle your way through it and just promise that you'll be better next time. The way forward is to gaze at God's kindness to you. If you're having trouble in in any fight with sin, whatever it may be, the way forward is to look at God's kindness. That is what leads you to repentance. When we begin to understand God's love, we begin to hate sin. So let's put this all together. We've seen in the face of the disastrous effects of sin that God himself, he refuses to give up. He knows exactly how bad our problem with sin is. But he has promised, we saw it last week in Genesis 3, he promised to put an end to sin. And here in this passage, we see the drama, it it continues to heighten. We see that God sets his war bow in the sky. And and imagine what it must have been like for a person who, who had read the Old Testament, or for the original audience of this, to see a rainbow for the first time after reading this passage. Imagine what it must have been like for just a Jewish person in the Old Testament to look at the rainbow and to be reminded of God's covenant with them, that he was going to have mercy. Now imagine what it must have been like for Jesus in his earthly ministry to look up and see a rainbow. What do you think that reminded him of? You see, Jesus would have seen in the rainbow, he would have seen the corruption of this world but he would have been reminded of the fact that it was his mission to do something about it. It was his mission to do something about it. When Jesus looked at the rainbow, he would have seen it as pointing to the cross. 
he would have seen in that rainbow, he would have seen an arrow heading directly to the heart of God. You see, it was on the cross where God himself moved closer and closer and closer to us in the face of human sin. See, on the cross, the perfect loving heart of God was pierced for the continually evil heart of humanity. I love the image that the book of Revelation gives of this. Uh, It talks about John, the, the writer of Revelation. He has this vision of Jesus seated in heaven, and this is the way it describes him. It says, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. See, Jesus here, after his life, death, and resurrection, he is seated on the throne. He has conquered everything. And what do we see but the covenant symbol of the rainbow there? The same sign that God gives after the flood, the covenant promise of God, it was pointing forward to the heart of Jesus. It was pointing forward to the fact that Jesus was going to do something about our sin problem. The heart of Jesus is seated on that throne, surrounded by the symbol of God's love. And here's the thing, uh, through faith in Jesus, through trusting in him, our sin problem is dealt with. Our sin problem is dealt with. We can know that we are a part of God's loving purpose. When we make Jesus the most central thing in our lives, we are freed more and more from the disastrous effects of sin in our own lives and in the world around us. And in Jesus, we are, we are transferred from a place of grieving the heart of God to putting a smile on his face. And through doing so, we can reflect the heart of God all across the world. So if you want to be safe, right, if you want to be safe, if you want to be a part of God's loving kingdom, if you want to be ensured that that he does not have judgment for you but kindness, Jesus is the way. So I would encourage you to look to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.